If I am the grass, and you the breeze, blow through me. If I am the rose, and you the bird, then woo me. If you are the rhyme, and I the refrain, don't hang on my lips. Come, and I'll come too, when you cue me. If yours is the iron fist in the velvet glove, when the arrow flies, the heart is pierced. Tattoo me. If mine is the venomous tongue, the serpent's tail, charmer, use your charm, weave a spell, and subdue me. If I am the laurel that wreathes your brow, you are the arms around my bark, arms that never knew me. Oh, would that I were bark, so old and still in leaf, and you, dropping in my shade, due to bedew me. What shape should I take to marry your own? Have you, hawk to my shadow, moth to my flame, pursue me? If I rise in the east as you die in the west, die for my sake, my love, every night renew me. If, when it ends, we are just good friends. Be my friend, muse, brother and guide. Shamsuddin to my roomy. Be heaven and earth to me, and I'll be twice the me I am, if only half the world you are to me. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Ghazal by Mimi Calvari. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. If you're having difficulty, you'll find a link to one below in the description. Mimi Calvari is very much a poet of two worlds. She was born in Tehran, Iran, in 1944. However, at the age of six, she was sent to boarding school in the Isle of Wight. She returned to Iran at the age of 17, and then became a full-time resident of the United Kingdom at the age of 25. With so much hopping between cultures, it's no surprise that Calvary has expressed a kind of alienation from the place of her birth. She has frequently spoken about the way in which she felt robbed of her native Farsi language and how learning English became a means of survival for her. Here, I will read an excerpt from an interview she did for PN Review in 1999. Well, the loss of my first language has affected my writing, or has affected my relationship with the English language, obviously. Because when you're six, and you're somewhere in the middle of a boarding school in a strange country, learning the language as quickly as possible becomes absolutely imperative. And for me also, I think learning English well and quickly and mastering it became a vehicle through which I was going to belong. I was going to be assimilated or assimilate myself. It was very important to me. This loss of her first language is something that shapes much of Calvary's work. It may go some of the way to explaining why we see her using a gazelle, a traditionally Arabic-received form, 
to write her love poem here. To me, it's an attempt by Calvary to reconcile and pay homage to her native tongue of Farsi, while simultaneously mastering English. It becomes a fusion of two cultures. In any case, the poem gives us an excellent opportunity to explore the ghazal as a form. Before we go any further, I'd like to note that my pronunciation of certain terms when exploring this form may be far from perfect. I apologize and have done my best throughout. The roots of the form stretch all the way back to the 7th century, and it holds a wonderful paradox within it, that of being a rigorously flexible form. Whilst that may seem confusing, just by looking at the origin of its name, we can understand a little more of what that oxymoron really means. The ghazal, or ghazal, can encompass many, many things. In Arabic, ghazal, or ghazala, means flirtation, and that is certainly the poem that Calvary has written here. It brims with flirtation, and the promise of what love can fulfill. It is often used to express deep yearning, usually romantic, but not solely so. It can be for courtly love, erotic love, homoerotic love, and in certain rarer cases, platonic love. In exact opposition to that flexibility of theme are the strict rules that are needed to craft a gazelle. I could try and explain it to you, but here is the poet herself doing a very simple and much more efficient job of it. Gazelles are an old Persian form, and they're written in self-contained couplets with a monorhyme, sometimes one or two or three word repeated phrase like a refrain. And the last couplet is the signature couplet in which the writer has to refer to themselves by name or pseudonym or using some kind of wordplay on their name. The couplets she references are traditionally called share and are mostly independent of one another in theme. It's important to note that the first couplet of the ghazal rhymes with itself. In this poem, it is me and me, or a a. In the couplets that follow, however, it is only the second line of each that follows that established refrain. That refrain is traditionally called a radif, or radif. Finally, that signature couplet, or final sure, is the makta. Whilst there are several more layers of complexity and nuance to the form, these are the bones of it and should help in our understanding of the poem. For easier analysis, I've split the poem into three groups of three couplets, and a final couplet standing apart from the rest. One of my favourite aspects of this poem is the way it handles the concept of love as a fine balance. Unlike some love poems, there is very little about dependency or weakness. Instead, the speaker in this poem presents multiple ways in which they and their partner complement each other. Each couplet is a love poem in itself, and they can vary from flirtatious to deeply erotic. From those first three couplets, we see this pure love poetry take shape. If I am the grass and you the breeze, blow through me. If I am the rose and you the bird, then woo me. 
If you are the rhyme and I the refrain, don't hang on my lips. Come, and I'll come too, when you cue me. If yours is the iron fist in the velvet glove when the arrow flies, the heart is pierced. Tattoo me. In these first three couplets, our refrain, or radif, is established. It is the word me. The imagery and examples that Calvary provides seem purely romantic, but as we pick through each one, we begin to see the mastery of language and pure wit that is often found in her poetry. The first couplet is sweet. There is a serenity to both images, that of flowing grass and a single rose in winter. They are calm flashes of scenes which capture that sense of early love. In fact, each set of couplets could be seen as a stage of love, a milestone of emotion in relationships. The next couplet, where the speaker references themselves as a refrain, is a testament to the impatience and hunger that comes with young love. The speaker states, don't hang on my lips. It's a beseechment for their lover to come near and be there with them. Then there is the inevitable vulnerability of true love. The moment we realize how deeply we've fallen and just how much we've left ourselves open to another. Here, the speaker uses the famous idiom of the iron fist and the velvet glove, a reference to one who seems gentle but holds a terrible power. The power their lover holds here is not necessarily a negative thing, but rather a recognition of how deep their hold is over the speaker. The famous imagery of a heart being pierced by Cupid's arrow is invoked to finish the couplet. The tattoo their lover leaves a permanent mark. Here, Calvary's love of wordplay is revealed, as that self-same image of the pierced heart is often seen in tattoo form on countless parlor walls and movie scenes. The trials and tribulations of love continue in the next three couplets. If mine is the venomous tongue, the serpent's tail, charmer, use your charm. Weave a spell and subdue me. If I am the laurel that reads your brow, you are the arms around my bark, arms that never knew me. Oh, would that I were bark, so old and still in leaf, and you, dropping in my shade, due to bedew me. Now, there is the fury and passion that comes in those moments of disagreement, the hurtful words spoken as tensions rise and feelings fray, those painful moments where we say things that we might not be able to take back. The speaker hopes for the comfort only their love can bring. They literally compare the calming effect of the other to that of weaving a spell. A bittersweet tone finds its way into the next couplet. It is a reference to the Greek myth of Daphne and Apollo. Our speaker talks of how they are the laurel that wreathes your brow. The laurel wreath is a traditional symbol of the Greek god Apollo for a very tragic reason. It was once said that the sun god Apollo 
insulted the love god Eros, remarking that his bowmanship was poor. In an act of revenge, the god of love prepared two arrows to show just how true his aim could be and just how dangerous that made him. One arrow for Apollo would make him fall deeply and madly in love with the nymph Daphne. The other arrow for Daphne would have the opposite effect, making her detest Apollo beyond limit. Eros' plan succeeded and Apollo was dogged in his pursuit of Daphne, relentless and predatory in fact. To seek relief from this endless ardour, Daphne turned to Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and chastity, and begged for some escape from all of it. Artemis took pity on her, and knowing she could not take direct action against her own twin, chose instead to transform Daphne into a laurel tree. Upon seeing this transformation, Apollo wept with grief and vowed to wear a laurel wreath forevermore in honour of Daphne and the extreme limits he drove her to. What then does this mean for our poem? Calvary has referenced this tale heavily. From the laurel that reads your brow to the arms around my bark that never knew me, we get a sense of the obsession the two share but also, perhaps, that their intense love was doomed, or simply not meant to be. Did the speaker's love never truly get to know them, in the same way that Apollo failed to do for Daphne? Perhaps it is simply an unwelcome thought, as in the next couplet, the speaker embraces Daphne's fate, rather than fears it, saying, Oh, that I were bark! and talking about the way they would do anything to provide shelter and comfort for their lover. Simply to have them near. This may seem an extreme sacrifice, to purely be near their beloved, but such is their love that any sacrifice would be bearable. The next three couplets continue this tone of adapting to fit their lover's needs, but also reaching that least enjoyed stage of a relationship. The end. What shape should I take to marry your own? Have you hawk to my shadow, moth to my flame? Pursue me. If I rise in the east as you die in the west, die for my sake, my love. Every night renew me. If, when it ends, we are just good friends, be my friend, muse, brother and guide. Sham sudden to my roomy. Perfect pairs are listed in that first couplet. Moths and flames, hawks and shadows. That flirtatious quality the gazelle is famous for is highlighted in full force by the line Pursue me, the question mark left hanging, a temptation for all to read. Again, the imagery of metamorphosis dominates the narrative. What shape should I take to marry your own? The goal, it would seem is forever. Forever takes the form of a cycle of death and birth in the next share. There is a mythological quality granted to their love. They renew one another endlessly through cyclical sacrifice, giving parts of each other so the other might be renewed. Once again, flirtation abounds and there are countless ways in which the pair 
may renew one another, especially at night. Calvary leaves the form that renewal might take up to the reader's imagination. Then comes the recognition that love can change over time, but more importantly, that such changes do not diminish the love that comes before. I mentioned earlier in the episode that the gazelle can depict many types of love. In this couplet, Calvary counts the forms it may take. If, when it ends, we are just good friends, be my friend, muse, brother and guide, Shamsuddin to my roomie. Their bond can still stand. The inspiration and support they represent to each other can still be there. The history of the Ghazal is woven into the lines once more with the mention of Shamsuddin and Rumi. Rumi was a titan of Persian literature from the 13th century, a poet and a Sufi, a mystic and a spiritualist. He wrote many Ghazals that still influence poets and romantics alike today. Shamsuddin seems to be a reference to Shams Tabrizi, a poet in his own right, a great friend and huge inspiration to Rumi, someone who is referenced and mentioned numerous times by Rumi in his own work. He is a muse by any other name. By using this reference to two great Arabic poets, the poem is rooted back into Persian culture. With all this, the speaker confirms that they want every kind of love from their partner, a connection that goes beyond the mere romantic. The final couplet sees the rigorous requirements of the Ghazal honored fully. Be heaven and earth to me, and I'll be twice the me I am, if only half the world you are to me. The observant listener will remember that Calvati mentioned that the final couplet of the Ghazal must bear the poet's name or some wordplay on it as a form of signature. When the poet says, I'll be twice the me I am, in other words, me, me, she is signing her first name into those final lines. It is a perfectly subtle way to fulfill the Ghazal. She ends on a beautiful note saying, if only half the world you are to me, no matter what way this relationship goes, the love that the speaker feels will not diminish. The other will remain the speaker's whole world. It is a testament to the depth of love they feel for the person they are speaking to, and at the same time, proving itself a perfect subject for the gazelle. So, why this poem? The Ghazal, to me, is an incredibly beautiful form of poetry. I once read it described as a necklace of disparate pearls. And that is, in my opinion, a perfect summation of the form. Each couplet contains its own beauty, and the subtle rhyming scheme that runs throughout the entire poem, through, cue, tattoo, subdue, new, bidu, and so on, is an incredibly elegant way to tie it all together. It's a form that somehow captures the highlight reel that many of us talk about when we talk about love. 
those flashes and fleeting moments of pure joy that we can hardly believe are real, are given poetic form here. Few have done it as well in English as Mimi Calvati. Her words are resonant in every syllable, and we feel the deep affection that she does for the person she has written this poem about. It captures the true sense of what it is to be in love with someone. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, or you have a suggestion for the podcast, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can find my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com, where you'll also find the show notes for this episode and many others, complete with references. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast, and there you can find helpful study guides and bonus content. If you've been enjoying the show, I humbly ask that you leave me a review anywhere you're listening. It would help the podcast immensely. If you know anybody who you think would enjoy this podcast, please send it to them. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Kai Engel and is used under Creative Commons license. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me again. And hopefully, you'll hear from me soon.